Well, we're here to look at the essential ministry of the body of Christ. I would add a word there, the essential sanctifying ministry of the body of Christ. And I want to begin uh, our time with two principles. I want to lay down these principles for you, and then we'll look at our passage scripture. Here's the first principle. In every relationship of your life, you are either living and responding as an owner or as an ambassador. In every relationship of your life, you're living and responding there as either an owner or an ambassador. Owner means you're acting like that relationship belongs to you and it's, and it's yours for your happiness, your comfort, your pleasure, your ease. Ambassador means you have the sense in that relationship. You are called to represent the agenda, the purposes of another. In every relationship in your life, you are living and responding as either an owner or an ambassador. We try every year to get together with our our adult children for a family vacation. I have four children, my three sons are married, and my daughter is not yet. And so the boys come with their wives, and one of the things that uh, they love for us to do is make those traditional family meals that we made when they were growing up. And they all have their certain favorites that they make sure make the menu that week. And the highlight of the week is the morning when I make the universe's best cinnamon rolls. There is no debate. There is no even distant challenge. These are an edible glory. I love how much of the glory of God in creation is edible. And, and I, I know what's going to happen on that morning. I'm going to get up earlier than everybody else. I'm going to assemble those cinnamon rolls. I'm going to put them in the oven. And then that glorious, gorgeous aroma will begin to waft through the vacation house. And my children will be lifted out of their beds (laughs) by the stunning wonder of that smell. And they they will walk down the hallway and they'll see me sitting there, and they'll bow down (laughs) in front of me and thank me for the glory that they've experienced in the fact that I am their father. (laughs) And so it's on the morning where I'm making those, those glorious cinnamon rolls, and I've assembled them, I've put them in the oven, and I'm now sitting on the chair, waiting for what I know is going to happen. And my first son shows up, my oldest son, Justin, and he walks down the hall where I'm ready for him to say, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, that I am your son, thank you, for you make roles. And he says these words to me, Dad, can I make something else for breakfast? (laughs) 
I'm thinking, absolutely not. And then he says, my wife. (laughs) Interloper in the family that she is. Alien to all things trip. (laughs) Doesn't want something this sweet for breakfast. Who does she think she is? And now I want to be okay with that. I want to say, sure, that's great. Make whatever you want. But that's not what's inside of me. I'm thinking... I'm Paul Cinnamon Roll Trip. <laughs> it's now, we're now at the table, and she positions herself right across from this platter of edible glory. And she's eating scrambled eggs. Scrambled eggs. <laughs> scrambled eggs. <laughs> Obliterated embryos. (laughs) And and I don't want to be paying attention, but I can hear her chew. (laughs) I hear every bite. And I'm 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 trying to ease the platter closer to her. To, to heighten the temptation. I want her to say, I was wrong. These embryos don't compare. See, what is that about? I mean, think with me for a moment. We laugh at these moments, but this kind of situation is a description of Endless conflict and endless heartache and endless pain and endless anger and endless hurt. What is it about? It's all about me. It's all about what I want. It's all about you serving my happiness and my purpose. Think with me how much of your anger in the last year with the people in your life had anything whatsoever to do with the kingdom of God. We're not angry because people break God's law. Oh, that we would have more of that anger. You're angry because you break my law. It's my wants, my needs, my feelings. I make rolls, you eat rolls. That's the law. And if you do, I'll treat you kindly. I'll act warmly towards you. If you don't, I'll be irritated and I'll be cranky with you. What a horrible mess. Oh, that God would deliver us from this mess. you can't relate to what I'm talking about right now, you're just not being honest with yourself. You see, in every relationship in your life, you're, you're either living as owner or as ambassador. Second principle. If your eyes ever see and your ears ever hear 
the sin, weakness, and failure of a person near you. Let me say that again so you can get it. If your eyes ever see or your ears ever hear the sin, weakness, and failure of a person near you, it's never an accident. It's never a hassle. It's never an obstacle. It's always grace. God loves that person. He's put them in a family of faith or in a community of faith, and he will reveal their need to you so you can be part of God's instrumentality of forgiveness, rescue, and transformation. You know what the Bible calls that? Grace. If your eyes ever see and your ears ever hear the sin, weakness, and failure of someone near you, it's never an accident. It's never an obstacle. It's never a hassle. It's always grace. God loves that person. He's put him in some kind of community of faith, and he will reveal their need to you because he's zealous in his grace so that you could be part of his instrumentality of love and rescue and transformation. It's grace. Now, let's be honest. We don't always see it as grace, do we? It's 10.30 at night. And the children you've put to bed at 9 o'clock are now fighting in their beds. Got the scene? Some of you are smiling. It's all too close to home. And you start down the hallway, feet heavy on the floorboards. You're probably not saying, thank you, God, for this wonderful opportunity to represent you one more time. How much I love redemption, even at this late hour. And marvel in your grace, even when I'm tired. That's probably not what you're saying. You're probably saying, they're dead. They're dead. And you burst into the room and you say, do you know what my day's been like? Like, do you have a sense what I do? I do and do and do and do for you and this is the thanks I get? I don't need a mansion or a Rolls Royce, just children who are from earth. Well, I bought every shred of clothes you put on that back of yours. I bought every morsel of food you put in that mouth of yours. I made your Christmases happy. <laughs> now, do you think your children are saying at this point, my, this is helpful. This is a truly wise person. I'm so thankful this person is in my life. I think I'm seeing my heart. I think not. In fact, when you've had an encounter with somebody gets up into your face, flashing eyes, bulging vein, veins, so close to you, you can feel their breath and they're saying inflammatory things, you have never, ever in your life felt helped by that. Never. It's never helpful. It's never helpful. It's never helpful. It's never helpful. No one has ever said, I wish you'd do that with me again. No one. Now, why are you angry? You're not angry because your children are breaking God's law. You're angry because your children have broken your law. And in your system of law, there shall be no parenting after 10 o'clock. 
you see, and I'm looking at something that's gorgeous grace. God loves these children in, in sovereign grace. He's placed them in a family of faith. And in, and in the zeal of his redemptive love, he will again and again expose the depth, the shocking depth of their spiritual need to me. Why? Because he loves them. He loves them dramatically more than I do. It's grace. But it didn't happen to be on my schedule. And so I'm looking at it as a hassle. I'm actually walking down the hallway. Hear this, and I'm saying, what a hassle. I have to share the grace of Jesus with my kids again. I can't believe it. I have to talk about the cross again. I have to lift up his saving power again to my kids. I have to download the wisdom of the word again. What's up with that? You would never say it that way, would you? Would you? But that's what's going on. If your eyes ever see and your ears ever hear the sin, weakness, and failure of someone near you, it's never an interruption. It's never an accident. It's never a hassle. It's always grace. Turn to our passage in Colossians 3. I think this is one of the more radical passages in the New Testament. I think it lays an agenda down that I'm not sure the church of Jesus Christ is actually taken seriously. It... it it says things that, that have the power to challenge the way we tend to typically operate. Let me read for you. I am reading the ESV because I'm a few steps further on my sanctification than Tim. <laughs> Pray for my ministry to him. Put on then as God's chosen one, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now, Look with me at just verses 12 to 14. I want to read again. Put on then as God's chosen one, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has complained against another, forgiving each other as the Lord 
has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. The minute you get that kind of calling, you immediately know this. Your relationships do not belong to you. There is one who stands above those relationships. There is one who owns every relationship in your life. And he has a plan and a purpose for those relationships. Those relationships are not to be uh, shrunk down to your personal little agenda. This is what I want out of my relationships. This is what I'm seeking out of my relationships. And I'll be happy with people who give it to me. And I'll be upset with people who don't. No, 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 no. This is my, your relationships belong to me and I have a particular agenda for every one of your relationships. When we're talking about the ministry of the body of Christ, we mean your entire life. Because enough of this formalistic, scheduled uh, view of ministry. If you're God's child, you have not just been called to be a recipient of the work of his kingdom. You've been called to be an instrument of the work of his kingdom wherever he, in his sovereign plan, positions you. So that's every relationship in your life, every dimension of your life, whether, whether you're conscious that it's the church or whether it's in the family or wherever you are, the one who has created you and created those people and has in his plan brought you to be in close proximity to those people, owns those relationships and has an agenda for them. That's the model. And we have so much grief in our relationships, so much hurt, so much anger, precisely because we're not on God's agenda page. We don't esteem what he esteems in those relationships because we shrink those relationships down to the claustrophobic little confines of my wants, my needs, my feelings. Luol and I decided that we would take a long family road trip. If you want to experience depravity, Take a long family road trip. You won't just experience your children's, you'll experience yours. And our son Ethan, during this period of time in his life, had polyps in his nose, and he would wheeze when he breathed. <laughs> it was a bit distracting. <laughs> He's sitting in the back seat of the car next to his sister Nicole. And Nicole says at some point, Daddy, Ethan is bothering me. I said, what is he doing? And without hesitation, she answered, he's breathing. <laughs> I couldn't resist asking the next question. I said, what do you want me to do? And without hesitation, she said, tell him to stop. You're respirating is bothering me. If you just die, we'll stick you in the trunk or tie you to the top of the car and we'll have peace. <laughs> Seriously, I want to ask the video question again. If I would watch the video of your last six weeks, what would I conclude is your true agenda for your relationships? When in those relationships do you experience your highest joys? When do you feel 
disappointment or experience anger. If you look back on a good relational day or a good relational week and you say, wow, that was a great day. Why are you saying that? Your agenda or God's agenda? You see, this, this, this opening is, don't you get it? There is one who owns these relationships. He has written your story so you're next to these people. And he has an agenda for those relationships. Now, where do all these character qualities come from? What, what is this list of character qualities? Compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, forbearance, uh, forgiveness, and love. Where do they come from? Just some random list? Paul did a Google search of character qualities? Where do they come from? Where does this list come from? Can, can someone tell me? You can talk. It's legal. Where? What are these about? It's the character of Christ. This is Christ. This is a description of who Christ is. This is a description of how your Savior responds to you. He's glorious in kindness, full of compassion, uh, long-suffering and patient, meek and humble, the definition of love, bounteous in forgiveness. This is Christ. You know what he's actually saying? Go out in your relationships and put on Christ. Put on Christ. You do with others what Christ has done for you. You be to others what Christ has been to you. Give to others the same grace that you've been given. That alone would trans transform our relationships. Now, you have to know that this is an ambassadorial calling. You see, what he's actually saying is you go out in your relationships with your children, uh, with your neighbors, with brothers and sisters in the body of Christ, with your husband or with your wife, with your friends, and you make the invisible Christ visible in their lives. You incarnate the grace of the Lord Jesus in the life of others. You make Christ glorious. You make Christ attractive. You let Christ loom larger than any other thing that would loom large in their hearts. Incarnate Christ. Be an ambassador. Represent Christ. Now it's humbling. Because what he's saying is this. Oh, check this out. You have no power whatsoever to change anybody. None. None. You have no power to change anyone. And the minute you think by tone of voice and by logic of argument and by threat or manipulation or intimidation or guilt, you can change somebody, you've now told yourself that you're the fourth member of the Trinity. 
there are three seats in case you're fuzzy on your theology. And they're all well occupied. But isn't that what we do? We raise our voice. As if volume is what the issue is about. We, we try threat. You do not want me to come up those steps one more time. It'll be on the news. <laughs> Our husband will say to his wife because she's not doing his will and he's angry. I remember when I was a happy man. It's before I got married. I think back on those simple golden single days. You're trying maybe to instill a little guilt. Listen, if you and I had any power whatsoever, any power whatsoever to change another human being, Jesus would not have had to come. The cross blows that away. And so what I offer you is not the force of my personality. What I offer you is not the logic of my argument. What I offer you is not threat, relational threat or guilt. What I offer you is the Savior, Christ. That there's grace for you. There's forgiveness for you. There's humility for you. Know what that means? That means there's hope for you. There's hope for you. Yeah, you've made the wrong choices in this moment. But there's hope for you because there's a Savior. And I want, I want my, my way of relating to you to lift up the person and the presence of the one who is your only hope. We're not people mechanics. We're ambassadors. You get the difference? Quit trying to fix people. Stop it. It's not your job. Was that clear enough? I can say these things because I get to leave. It's not your job. Your job is to go as a humble, gracious ambassador of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let's talk. I look at that list, and it brings me to my knees. I say, God, I can't do this. I can't do this. I'm serious. I can't represent you this way. I can be so easily irritated. I'm so easily impatient. I can be so quickly judgmental. I could be so proud of myself and, and look down on somebody else. God, I can't do this. You know what's happening to you? When you accept the calling that you've been given, it will drive you toward what? The very same Savior. Because who in this room would be so arrogant as to stand up and say, I can do all these things easily? It creates a transaction in your own heart. It creates grief in your own heart. It creates spiritual neediness in your own heart that makes you run to the very same Savior. Now, here's why that's important. Because nobody gives grace better to somebody else than a person who's deeply persuaded they need it themselves. There it is. You see, the call 
to be an instrument of grace will drive you to seek the very same grace and will enable you then to give grace. What a beautiful plan. That's the plan. You see, your assessment of weakness is not your problem because his strength is made perfect in our weakness. Your problem is your delusions of strength because strong people don't seek grace and because they don't seek grace, they don't give grace well. What a gorgeous plan. I don't wake up in the morning and I I load all the burden of the spiritual life of my children on my shoulders and I load all the burden of the spiritual life of my wife on my shoulders and I load all the burden of the spiritual lives of all the people that I know on my shoulders. I'm so weighted down. I wonder how in the world am I ever going to get these people to change? No, no, no. I hand all those burdens to a capable Savior. I trust all those people to an ever-present, capable Savior, and I simply pray, oh, give me the grace to represent you well today. That's it. Because you're the Savior, I'm not. You're what they need, I'm not. You have the power, I don't. You are wise, I'm not. You are everything that they need. I, I offer the spiritual welfare of these people to you, and oh, help me to be a tool in your hands. That's a freedom. I lived for years as a father and I didn't know that freedom. I did load it all on me. Because of that, I was uptight and legalistic and asking the law to do what only grace could accomplish. I had a mom say to me in a conference, if it's the last thing I ever do, I'll get my children to believe. You know what I thought? Maybe this is my immaturity. I, I immediately thought, I'm so thankful I'm not one of your children. Because that's not going to go anywhere good. You do not want to live with a self-anointed Messiah. It'll never work. Embrace 12 to 14. There's freedom and liberty and joy there. Stop trying to be the Savior. You're not the Savior. Don't carry the Savior's burdens. You don't have to carry those burdens. He carries them well. Face your utter inability to do what he's called you to do. Own it. You're unable. But his grace is sufficient. And move out with a deep sense of your own need and a lively celebration of grace that's been given. Because when you do that, you will want to give that same grace to the people in your life. Now the next verses make what we've just talked about very concrete. When am I supposed to be done? Okay. Like that will happen. (laughs) 
Luella always says to me, you didn't actually say that, did you? The difference between my brother Ted and me, some of you have heard Ted speak. Ted thinks of it, edits it, has an eternal restraint mechanism. I think it, I say it, and send emails of apology later. (laughs) Verse 15, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the peace of Christ rule your hearts. That's, That's the bottom line essential if you're going to be involved in this kind of gospel ministry we're talking about. Let the peace of Christ rule your hearts. Here's what this means. Let me say it this way first and then explain. It means you're not looking horizontally for what you've already been given in Christ. You're not searching horizontally for what you've already been given in Christ. You're not asking people to give you identity. You're not asking the situations of life to give you meaning and purpose. You're not asking somebody in your life to provide for you an inner sense of well-being. You're not asking earth to be your savior. The created physical world will never be your savior. The created physical world has no capacity whatsoever to bring lasting, sturdy peace to your heart. The created physical world is one big finger pointing to the one who is alone able to bring satisfaction and security and rest in your heart. And so I don't need you to agree with me. I don't need you to like me. I don't need you to think I'm something wise and special. Because although I want a good relationship with you, I don't get my spiritual well-being from you. Why can't we minister? Because we're so busy asking people to save us, we can't be a tool in the life of of those people as representatives of the Savior. We're so busy asking those people to save us, we can't represent the Savior in their lives. Rather than ministering to people, even though we're acting like we're ministering, we're actually asking people to minister to us. Because we're not living in light of the gospel that we say we believe. What does the gospel say? Hear the gospel. Hear it right now. His divine power has given us everything for life and godliness. Everything. God harnessed the forces of nature and controlled the events of human history so at a certain point in time, His Son would come and provide for us through His life, His death, and His resurrection every spiritual thing we need for life and godliness. Now, why does Peter use two words? He used two words because he knows his audience. If he said He's given us everything we need for life, we would tend to say, well, eternal life, isn't that wonderful? We have everything we need so we're We're sure of a seat in eternity. That's a wonderful thing, and that's true. It just doesn't happen to be Peter's topic. So he adds a second word, the word godliness, so you wouldn't misunderstand. What's godliness? Godliness is a God-honoring life 
between the time I came to Christ and the time I go home to be with him. It's, it's a God-pleasing life between the already and the not yet. If Jesus is to me everything, I need from you nothing. There it is. Do you believe that? That's hard. That's hard. You do not need the love of the person next to you to be spiritually okay. Is that a beautiful thing? Is that a blessing? Should you pray for that? Should you want to have a community that has that? Yes. It just doesn't happen to be something God's promised you. If Jesus is to me everything, then I need for you spiritually, is what I'm talking about, nothing. That frees me then to have my focus on the grand agenda of God. I'll never lose because the one whose agenda I'm following is to me everything. Get it? So I don't have to think what's going to happen to me if, if, I, if I give this to this person, if I serve this person this way, if I sacrifice this, what, blah, 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 blah. We just freak out. Because we're filled with so many what-if questions and we have all those what-if questions because we don't actually believe the gospel. What if I'm actually na- nice to my husband when he's nasty to me? Then what will happen? If Jesus is to me everything, spiritually, I need from you nothing because I get it all in Christ. That is radical. Are there people in this room right now arguing with this? Do you find it a struggle inside? See, that's what the peace of Christ means. It means now I'm not so obsessed with my own needs and how you're going to be part of my needs being met that that ministry gets aborted because it's so much about me. It's so driven by my fear that somehow, somehow way, I won't have everything that I need. I think, I said this Yesterday afternoon with some pastors that the dirty secret of ministry in the church of Jesus Christ is how much of that ministry is done out of fear and not out of faith. Because we don't actually rest on the promises of the gospel. I will never leave you or forsake you. Never, ever, ever. And I will supply every one of your needs. Listen. It's impossible for you to ever be in a situation, location, or relationship by yourself if you're God's child. And it's impossible when you're in that situation to ever be left to your own resources. That's the truth. Now, you see how that peace of Christ is very basic to ministry. I wish I could say that I have all this nailed, but I don't. Let me give you a ministry example. I, the last several years, I preached Sunday evening at 10th Presbyterian Church, a historical Presbyterian church in America, uh, founded in 1829. The building we meet in was built in 1859. Been faithful to the gospel for 
years and years and years and years, generations. And uh, I would get up on Sunday night, and there was a particular elder who just hated my preaching. He would eviscerate my preaching. Uh, He would get together with me and put me through uh, first-year seminary student tutorials on preaching. I was very appreciative. (laughs) That's a lie. Uh, Now, I would like to think that that didn't bother me, but it did. I would get up to preach, and everybody in the congregation had a normal-sized head, except for this guy. His head looked about this big, and he had the eyes of the Mona Lisa. You know that wherever you go, they look like they're looking at you. (laughs) It was like he had a big clipboard saying, not quite, not yet. There was one moment, this is perverse, where I'm preparing to preach, and I think this point will get him. He'll have to say, I was wrong. Your preaching is truly glorious. Now, I should never preach to get the acclaim of a particular person. In that moment, I'm preaching the gospel, but as a preacher, I'm forgetting the gospel that I'm preaching, and I'm trying to turn a sermon into a way to get the acceptance of a man that I feel I need. Destroys ministry. It just destroys it. It corrupts it with all kinds of motives, that get in the way of the gospel. If Jesus is to me everything, spiritually, I need from you nothing. I find it all in him. If that isn't radical enough, let's keep going. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let the word of Christ. Why does he say word of Christ? Why does he just say word? Let the word dwell in you richly. Because he's talking the gospel. Let the gospel live richly in you. Know the gospel. Bathe yourself in the gospel. Study the gospel. Develop a rich deposit of the gospel inside of you. Be able to look at life from the vantage point of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, now let's talk again. I think we've done violence to the gospel. Because we've tended to look at the gospel of Jesus Christ as an entrance and an exit. The gospel is about my coming to Christ. It's about His forgiveness and His acceptance. And the gospel is about uh, my exit into a final eternity with him. And so many of us then have the, this huge hole in the middle of our gospel. I'm deeply persuaded when, when Paul writes, as is elsewhere in the New Testament, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, hear my verbiage. He's talking about the nowism of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel right here, right now. 
What does it actually mean to live in light of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? If you're God's child, that's a question for you. Because what you're meant to live and meant to bring to others is the gospel. If you don't bring the gospel, you have one of two choices. You will first ask the law to do what only grace can accomplish. And what you'll bring to people... It's just a set of rules. Don't do this, do this. Now go live. And again, if the law could transform the heart of a human being, Jesus would not have come. So you'll either run, run in the law direction or you'll run in the world's direction. You'll look to the world for answers of all those practical questions of life because you don't actually have nowism in your gospel. It's about the past. It's about the future. But you don't know what it actually looks like to live the gospel in the specific places where you are every day. Could you write 10 pages on what it means to live the gospel of Jesus Christ in your marriage? Could you? Could you write 10 pages on, on the on a unique gospel approach to marriage? Could you? Five pages? A page? A paragraph? A sentence? What is a unique gospel perspective on your possessions? Do you know? What, what a, a unique gospel perspective on sexuality. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, know and understand the nowism, the gospel, the present benefits of the work of Christ right here, right now. The gospel is not just an item in your theology, it's something you live. You, it is a window on everything in life. No, the gospel, because the gospel is what you bring to one another. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the center of that is Christ himself, a capable, a willing, powerful Savior. And then it says, teaching and admonishing one another. Who? Who's doing the teaching? Who? You can talk. Who's doing the teaching? This highly degreed religious professional? I don't mean temperature degrees, in case you were confused. <laughs> this is a call to the body of Christ. Everyone in the body of Christ. Now, now think about how radical it is. Paul is actually proposing a radical gospel culture where everyone is called to have some kind of teaching function in the life of everyone around them. And everyone is called to have some kind of admonishing function in the life of everyone around them. It's a mobilized, gospel-centered, Christ-resting, active body of Christ that's ready for ministry. How beautiful is that? Enough 
of ecclesiastical Macy's. I'm serious. Where the bulk of the body of Christ are nothing but consumers. And they come with consumeristic interest. And if on your shelves is not the stuff they're looking for, they'll go to another religious department store because they have no allegiance to you whatsoever. If I'm in Macy's and they don't have my shirt, I feel no moral compulsion to buy something anyway. Because I'm not in and of Macy. So I go to another store. This is a whole different model. This is saying, don't you understand? You are an organic, essential part of what this thing is. It's not just that you're there to receive gladly what this thing is. You are an essential part of what this thing is. You must prepare yourself to teach. You must prepare yourself to admonish. If you are not now preparing yourself to teach and admonish, you are disobedient to the call of Christ. It's not your choice. You do not have the choice to have a weakened relationship to your local church. You do not have the choice to be a consumer. The choice has been made for you by your Savior. You're called to teach. And you're called to admonish. Now what does teach mean? Teach means I want to help this person look at life from the unique perspective of the gospel. Because it's so easy not to do that and get myself all confused all ki- in all kinds of knots because I'm interpreting life in ways that are just wrong. And so I come next to you. I don't try to fix you. I'm, I'm representing the patient grace of Christ and I'm helping you to look at the world around you from the unique perspective of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me give you one, one piece of that. What the gospel says is that the world we live in right now is dramatically broken. It's not functioning the way God intended. The whole world groans waiting for what? Redemption. You live in a world that's, that is groaning for redemption. So hear this. Bad things will happen to you. Don't be surprised. Don't think that you've been singled out for particular suffering. Don't think that your God has forsaken you. You live in a broken world waiting for redemption. And guess what? That brokenness will enter your door. Your salvation hasn't given you a ticket out of the brokenness. In fact, your Savior has chosen for you to stay right smack dab in the middle of its brokenness. Now, that's a very helpful perspective. Because if you don't understand that, watch this. You'll live with unrealistic expectations. You'll be naive to temptation. You'll wonder where your Savior is. The the enemy will whisper in your ear, where is your God now? You'll begin to question God's goodness. And when you question God's goodness, you quit going to Him for help because you never go to help for somebody whose character you now doubt. What a mess. That's just one gospel perspective. 
I can't tell you how many people I've counseled who just are unrealistic about their view of life. I'd sit with a future husband and future wife in, in premarital counseling. And the future wife would look at her future husband with sort of glassy romantic eyes and she'd say something like this. I don't think I could ever be angry with him. I'm angry just to hear it. <laughs> so I'm, I'm helping this person to look at the surrounding world, to think in distinctive gospel ways about the surrounding world. Second thing, I'm called to admonish. Here's what this is. This is helping you to see yourself in the mirror of the gospel. Helping yourself to see yourself, helping you to see yourself in the mirror of the gospel. People don't need your opinion. They don't need your agenda for them. Your particular idiosyncratic way of thinking about what a good person looks like. What they need for you is to hold in front of them the mirror of the gospel so they see themselves with accuracy because they don't. What do we do? We all look in carnival mirrors. What does a carnival mirror do? It shows you you, but it shows you you with distortion. You don't actually have a three-inch torso and a six-foot neck. And so the distortion of cultural values, the, the distortion of some hero in your life, the distortion of the opinion of friends, the distortion of distorted familial values, all those distortions give me a misshapen view of myself, the distortion of the deceitfulness of sin. And so I want to I help this person to see themselves in the mirror of the Word of God. Now that's everybody's function in the body of Christ. Prepare yourself to teach. Prepare yourself to admonish. Because all of you have been called to be instruments in the hands of a glorious Savior. Job is not to fix people. Job is not to carry on your shoulders the burden of their spirituality. Your job is to say, there is an ever-present, ever-faithful Savior who has the power to do in this moment everything that needs to be done. I don't have to be him because he doesn't ask me to do that. I don't have to ask things of you because he is everything to me. I will move forward. And in the same grace that he's given me, I will work to help you to understand who you are, what the world is in the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ and watch the miracles of transformation that he alone can do. What a gorgeous plan and humility and grace and courage. In Jesus' name, amen.